Welcome everyone to Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and today's episode is about serial killer Ted Bundy. He's one of the most famous serial killers in the United States, but even I have learned some new things about him while researching this episode. So let's just get into it. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Theodore Robert Bundy was a serial killer who kidnapped, raped, and murdered dozens of young women and girls during the 1970s and possibly earlier. After more than a decade of denials, he finally confessed to 30 murders committed in seven states between 1974 and 1978. His true victim total is still unknown. Bundy would often employ charm to disguise his murderous intent when kidnapping victims and extended this tactic to law enforcement, the media, and the criminal justice system to maintain his claims of innocence. His usual technique involved approaching a female in public and luring her to a vehicle parked in a more secluded area, at which point she would be beaten unconscious, restrained with handcuffs, and taken elsewhere to be sexually assaulted and killed. To this end, Bundy typically simulated having a physical impairment, such as an injury, in order to convince his target that he was in need of assistance with something, or would dupe her into believing that he was a, an authority figure. He frequently revisited the bodies of those that he abducted, grooming and performing sex acts on the corpses until decomposition and deconstruction by wild animals made further interactions impossible. He decapitated at least 12 of his victims, keeping their severed heads as mementos inside of his apartment. On a few occasions, he broke into homes at night and bludgeoned, maimed, strangled, and or sexually assaulted his victims in their sleep. In 1975, Bundy was arrested and jailed in Utah for aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault. He then became a suspect in a progressively longer list of unsolved homicides in several states. Facing murder charges in Colorado, Bundy engineered two dramatic escapes and committed further assaults in Florida, including three murders, before his ultimate recapture in 1978. 
for the Florida homicides, he received three death sentences in two trials and was executed at Florida State Prison in Ryford on January 24, 1989. Biographer Ann Rule characterized him as, quote, a sadistic sociopath who took pleasure from another human's pain and the control that he had over his victims to the point of death and even after. Bundy once described himself as the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet. In a statement with which attorney Polly Nelson, a member of his last defense team, agreed, Ted, she wrote, was the very definition of heartless evil. Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24, 1946, to Eleanor Louise Cowell at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. His biological father's identity has never been confirmed. His original birth certificate apparently assigns paternity to a salesman and United States Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall, though a copy of it listed his father as unknown. Louise claimed that she met a war veteran named Jack Worthington, who abandoned her soon after she became pregnant. Census records reveal that several men by the name of John Worthington and Lloyd Marshall lived near Louise when Bundy was conceived. Some family members expressed suspicions that Bundy was sired by Louise's own father. However, in the 2020 documentary film Crazy Not Insane, psychiatrist Dorothy Otnow Lewis claimed that she received a sample of Bundy's blood and that a DNA test had confirmed that Bundy was not the product of incest. For the first three years of his life, Bundy lived in Philadelphia, a suburb of Roxboro, Pennsylvania, with his maternal grandparents, who raised him as their son to avoid the social stigma that accompanied birth outside of wedlock at that time. Family, friends, and even young Ted were told that his grandparents were his parents and that his mother was his older sister. He eventually discovered the truth about his family, although his recollections of the circumstances varied. He told a girlfriend that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him a bastard, but he told biographer Stephen Machard and Hugh Ainsworth that he had found the certificate himself. Biographer and true crime writer Ann Rule, who knew Bundy personally, wrote that he did not find out until 1969 when he located his original birth record in Vermont. Bundy expressed a lifelong resentment toward his mother for never, t never telling him about his real father and for leaving him to discover his true parentage for himself. Bundy would occasionally exhibit disturbing behavior at an early age. Louise's younger sister, Julia, recalled awakening from a nap to find herself surrounded by knives from the kitchen and her three-year-old nephew standing by the bed, smiling. In some interviews, Bundy spoke warmly of his grandparents and told Rule that he identified with, respected, and clung to his grandfather. In 1987, however, he and other family members told attorneys that Samuel was a tyrannical bully who beat his wife and dog, swung neighborhood cats by their tails, and expressed racist and xenophobic attitudes. In one instance, Samuel reportedly 
threw Julia down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. He would sometimes speak aloud to unseen presences, and at least once flew into a violent rage when the question of Bundy's paternity was raised. Bundy described his grandmother as a timid and obedient woman who periodically underwent electroconvulsive therapy for depression and feared to leave their house toward the end of her life. These descriptions of Bundy's grandparents have been questioned in more recent investigations. Some locals remembered Samuel as a fine man and expressed bewilderment at the reports of him being violent. The characterization that Sam was a raging alcoholic and animal abuser was a convenient characterization used to make people justify why Ted was the way he was, said one of Bundy's cousins. For my limited exposure to him, nothing could be farther from the truth. His daughters loved him dearly and had nothing but fond memories of him. In addition, Louise's sister, Audrey Cowell, stated that their mother could not leave her home because she suffered a stroke due to being overweight and was not mentally ill. In 1950, Louise changed her surname from Cowell to Nelson and, at the urging of multiple family members, left Philadelphia with Ted to live with cousins Alan and Jane Scott in Tacoma, Washington. In 1951, Louise met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, a hospital cook, at an adult singles night at Tacoma's First Methodist Church. They married later that year, and Johnny formally adopted Ted. Johnny and Louise conceived four children together, and though Johnny tried to include his adopted son in camping trips and other family activities, Bundy remained distant from him. He would later complain to a girlfriend that Johnny, quote, was not his real father, wasn't very bright, and didn't make much money. Bundy varied his recollections of Tacoma in later years. To Michand and Ainsworth, he described roaming his neighborhood, picking through trash cans in search of pictures of naked women, and to attorney and author Polly Nelson, he said that he persuaded det- pursued detective magazines and crime novels for stories that involved sexual violence, particularly when the stories were illustrated with pictures of dead or maimed women. In a letter to Rule, however, he asserted that he never, ever read fact detective magazines and shuddered at the thought that anyone would. He once told Machad that he would consume large quantities of alcohol and canvas the community late at night in search of undraped windows where he could observe women undressing or whatever else could be seen. Psychologist Al Carlisle claimed that Bundy started fantasizing about women when he that he saw while window peeping or elsewhere, and mimicking the accents of some politicians he listened to on the radio. In essence, he was fantasizing about being someone else, someone important. Bundy's childhood Tacoma neighbor, Sandy Holt, described him as a bully and a mean-spirited kid. He liked to terrify people. He liked to be in charge. He liked to inflict pain and suffering and fear. She also alleged that Bundy engaged in animal cruelty. He hung one of the stray cats in the neighborhood from one of the clotheslines in the backyard, doused it in lighter fluid, and set it on fire, 
I could hear the cat squealing. She claimed that Bundy would take the younger children in the neighborhood into the woods and terrorize them. He would take them out there and strip them down, take their clothes, she said. You'd hear them screaming for blocks. I mean, no matter where we were here, we could hear them screaming. Holt added that Bundy built makeshift punji traps around his neighborhood, injuring at least one girl. One little girl went over the top of one of Ted's tiger traps and got the whole side of her leg slid open with the sharpened point of the stick that she landed on. Accounts of Bundy's social life also varied. He told journalists that he chose to be alone as an adolescent because he was unable to understand interpersonal relationships. He also claimed to have no natural sense of how to develop friendships. I didn't know what made people want to be friends, Bundy said. I didn't know what underlay social interactions. Some people perceived me as being shy and introverted, he said. I didn't go to dances. I didn't go on the beer drinking outings. I was a pretty, you might call me straight, but not a social outcast in any way. Classmates from Woodrow Wilson High School, however, told Rule that Bundy was well-known and well-liked there, a medium-sized fish in a large pond. Bundy's only significant athletic avocation was downhill skiing, which he pursued enthusiastically with stolen equipment and forged lift tickets. During high school, he was arrested at least twice on suspicion of burglary and motor vehicle theft. When he was 18 years old, the details of the incidents were expunged from his record as is customary in Washington and many other states. After graduating from high school in 1965, Bundy attended the University of Puget Sound for one year before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. In 1967, he became romantically involved with a UW classmate, Diane Edwards identified in Bundy biographies by several pseudonyms, most commonly Stephanie Brooks. Bundy later described Edwards as the only woman I ever really loved. In early 1968, Bundy dropped out of college and worked a series of minimum wage jobs. He also volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign and became Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign for Lieutenant Governor of Washington State. Edwards graduated in the spring of 1968 and left Washington for San Francisco. Bundy visited her later that year after he earned a scholarship to study Chinese at Stanford University that summer. In August, Bundy attended the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami. Shortly thereafter, Edwards ended their relationship and returned to her family home in California, frustrated by what she described as Bundy's immaturity and lack of ambition. Psychiatrist Dorothy Ottenow Lewis would later pinpoint this crisis as probably the pivotal time in his development. Devastated by the breakup, Bundy traveled to Colorado and then farther east, visiting relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia and enrolling for one semester at Temple University. It was also at this time in early 1969, Rule believed 
that Bundy visited the Office of Birth Records in Burlington and confirmed his true parentage. Bundy was back in Washington by the fall of 1969 when he met Elizabeth Klopeffer, identified in Bundy literature as Meg Anders, Beth Archer, or Liz Kendall, a single mother from Ogden, Utah, who worked as a secretary at the UW School of Medicine. Their tumultuous relationship would continue well past his initial incarceration in Utah in 1976. Bundy became a father figure to Klopfer's daughter Molly, who was three years old when he started dating her mother. He remained in her life until she was ten, after he had been arrested. As an adult, Molly wrote of incidents beginning at age seven, in which Bundy was abusive or sexually inappropriate with her. Her accounts include Bundy hitting her in the face, knocking her down, putting her at risk of drowning, indecent exposure, and sexual touching disguised as accidents or games. In mid-1970, Bundy, now focused and goal-oriented, re-enrolled at UW, this time as a psychology major. He became an honor student and was well regarded by his professors. In 1971, he took a job at Seattle Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. There, he met and worked alongside Ann Rule, a former Seattle police officer and aspiring crime writer who would later write one of the definitive Bundy biographies, The Stranger Beside Me. Rule saw nothing disturbing in Bundy's personality at the time. She described him as kind, salacious, and empathetic. After graduating from UW in 1972, Bundy joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. Posing as a college student, he shadowed Evans' opponent, former Governor Albert Rossellini, and recorded his stump speeches for analysis by Evans' teams. Evans appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. After Evans was re-elected, Bundy was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis thought well of Bundy and described him as smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system. In early 1973, despite mediocre LSAT scores, Bundy was accepted into the law school of UPS and the University of Utah on the strength of letters of recommendation from Evans, Davis, and several UW psychology professors. During a trip to California on Republican Party business in the summer of 1973, Bundy rekindled his relationship with Edwards. She marveled at his transformation into a serious and dedicated professional, seemingly on the cusp of a significant legal and political career. Bundy continued to date Klopfer as well, neither woman was aware of the other's existence. In the fall of 1973, he matriculated a UPS law school and continued courting Edwards, who flew to Seattle several times to stay with him. They discussed marriage, and at one point he introduced her to Davis as his fiance. In January 1974, Bundy abruptly broke off all contact with Edwards. Her phone calls and letters went unreturned. 
When she finally reached him by phone a month later, she demanded to know why he had unilaterally ended their relationship without any explanation. In a flat, calm voice, he replied, Diane, I have no idea what you mean, and hung up. She never heard from him again. Bundy later explained, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her. But Edwards concluded in retrospect that Ted's high-power courtship in the latter part of 1973 had been deliberately planned, that he had waited all those years to be in a position where he could make her fall in love with him so that he could drop her, reject her, as she had rejected him. By then, Bundy had begun skipping classes at law school. By April, he had stopped attending entirely as young women began to disappear in the Pacific Northwest. There is no consistent consensus as to when or where Bundy began killing women. He told different stories to different people and refused to divulge the specifics of his earliest crimes, even as he confessed in graphic detail to dozens of later murders in the days preceding his execution. He told Nelson that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969 in Ocean City, but did not kill anyone until sometime in 1971 in Seattle. He told psychologist Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City while visiting family in Philadelphia in 1969. Bundy hinted to homicide detective Robert Keppel that he committed a murder in Seattle in 1972 and another murder in 1973 that involved a hitchhiker near Tumwater, but he refused to elaborate. Rule and Keppel both believed that he might have started killing as a teenager. Bundy's earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974, when he was 27 years old. By his own admission, he had by then mastered the necessary skills, in the era before DNA profiling, to leave minimal incriminating forensic evidence at crime scenes. Shortly after midnight on January 4, 1974, around the time that he terminated his relationship with Edwards, Bundy entered the basement apartment of 18-year-old Karen Sparks, often identified as Joni Lenz, Mary Adams, and Terry Caldwell in Bundy literature. A dancer and student at UW in the University District of Seattle. After bludgeoning Sparks with a metal rod from her bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with the same rod, causing extensive internal injuries and rupturing her bladder. She remained unconscious in the hospital for 10 days, and although she survived, she was left with permanent brain damage, with significant loss to her vision and hearing. In the early morning hours of February 1st, Bundy broke into the basement room of 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy, a UW undergraduate who broadcast morning radio weather reports for skiers. He beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots, and carried her away. Bundy stated that he drove Healy to a secluded area where he raped and murdered her before dumping her body. During the first half of 1974, female college students disappeared at the rate of about one per month. On March 12th, Donna Gail Manson, a 19-year-old student at Evergreen State College in Olympia, 
60 miles southwest of Seattle, left her dormitory to attend a jazz concert on campus, but she never arrived. Bundy claimed that he that he burned Manson's skull in his girlfriend's fireplace down to the last ash in a fit of paranoia and cleanliness. On April 17th, 18-year-old Susan Elaine Rancourt disappeared while on her way to her dorm room after an evening advisors meeting at Central Washington State College. Two female Central Washington students later came forward to report encounters one on the night of Rancourt's disappearance, the other three nights earlier, with a man wearing a sling who was asking for help, carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. On May 6th, Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dormitory at Oregon State University, about 260 miles south of Seattle, to have coffee with friends at the Memorial Union, but she never arrived. Bundy claimed that he had spotted Parks in the cafeteria and persuaded her to go with him to a bar. After they got into his car, he tied up and gagged her and drove her back to Washington to be killed, raping her twice on the way. Investigators from Seattle and King County grew increasingly concerned. There was no significant physical evidence, and the missing women had, a little, had little in common apart from similar appearance. Young, attractive, white college students with long hair parted in the middle. On June 1st, Brenda Carroll Ball disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burien near Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. She was last seen in the parking lot, talking to a brown-haired man with his arm in a sling. Bundy stated he brought Ball back to his residence where they had consensual sexual encounter before he strangled her while she was sleeping, although this failed to explain the damage done to her skull. In the early hours of June 11th, 18-year-old UW student Jorgen G-E-O-R-G-A-N-N Hawkins vanished while walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dormitory residence and her sorority house. The next morning, three Seattle homicide detectives and a criminalist combed the entire hallway, alleyway on their hands and knees, finding nothing. Bundy later told Keppel that he lured Hawkins to his car and knocked her unconscious with a crowbar. After handcuffing her, he drove her to Isaquah, a suburb 20 miles east of Seattle, where he strangled her and spent the entire night with her body. The next afternoon, he returned to the UW Alley and, in the very midst of a major crime scene investigation, located and gathered Hawkins' earrings in one of her shoes where he had left them in the adjoining parking lot and departed unobserved. It was a feat so brazen, wrote Keppel, that it astonishes police even today. Bundy said that he revisited Hawkins' corpse on three different occasions. After Hawkins' disappearance was publicized, witnesses came forward to report seeing a man in an alley behind a nearby dormitory on the night of her disappearance. He was on crutches with a leg cast and was struggling to carry a briefcase. 
One woman recalled that the man asked her to help him carry the case to his car, a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. During this period, Bundy was working in Olympia as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission, where he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. Later, he worked at the Department of Emergency Services, a state government agency involved in the search for missing women. Let me just stop here. Isn't it a little funny that a lot of these serial killers that I've talked about has had some kind of work uh, with the police or in departments around the police? That the, the cops need to start looking a little closer to home to find some of these killers. At the DES, he met and began dating Carol Ann Boone, a twice-divorced mother of two who would play an important role in the final phase of his life six years later. Reports of the brutal attack on Sparks and the six missing women appeared prominently in the newspapers and on television throughout Washington and Oregon. Fear spread among the population. Hitchhiking by young women dropped sharply. Pressure mounted on law enforcement agencies, but the scarcity of physical evidence severely hampered them. Police would not provide reporters with the little information that was available for fear of compromising the investigation. Further similarities between the victims were noted. The disappearances all took place at night, usually near ongoing construction work, and were within a week of midterm or final exams. All of the victims were wearing pants or blue jeans when they disappeared and at many crime scenes there were sightings of a man wearing a cast or a sling and driving a brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. The Oregon and Washington murders culminated on July 14th with the broad daylight abductions of two women from a crowded beach at Lake Sammamish State Park in Issaquah. Four female witnesses described an attractive young man wearing a white tennis outfit with his left arm in a sling, speaking with a light accent, perhaps Canadian or British, introducing himself as Ted. He asked their help in unloading a sailboat from his tan or bronze-colored Volkswagen Beetle. Three refused. One accompanied him as far as his car, saw that there was no sailboat, and fled. Three additional witnesses saw him approach Janice Ann Ott, a probation caseworker at the King County Juvenile Court, with the sailboat story and watched her leave the beach in his company. About four hours later, Denise Marie Nasland, a 19-year-old woman who was studying to become a computer programmer, left a picnic to go to the restroom and never returned. Bundy told Stephen Machad, I know I'm completely mispronouncing his name every time and it's different, I apologize. And William Hagmeyer that Ott was still alive when he returned with Nasland and that he forced one to watch as he assaulted and murdered the other. But he later denied it in an interview with Lewis on the eve of his execution. King County Police, finally armed with a detailed description of their suspect in his car, posted flyers throughout the Seattle area. A composite sketch was printed in regional newspapers and broadcast on local television stations. 
Klopfer Rule, a DES employee, and a UW psychology professor all recognized the profile, the sketch, and the car, and reported Bundy as a possible suspect. But detectives who were receiving up to 200 tips per day thought it unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record could be the perpetrator. On September 6th, two grouse hunters stumbled across the skeletal remains of Ott and Noslin near a service road in Issaquah, two miles east of Lake Sammamish State Park. An extra femur and several vertebrae found at the site were later identified by Bundy as those of Hawkins. Six months later, forestry students from Green River Community College discovered the skulls and mandibles of Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball on Taylor Mountain, where Bundy had frequently hiked, just east of Issaquah. Manson's remains were never recovered. In August 1974, Bundy received a second acceptance from the University of Utah Law School and moved to Salt Lake City, leaving Klopfer in Seattle. While he called her called Klopfer often, he dated at least a dozen other women as he studied the first year law curriculum a second time. He was devastated to find out that the other students had something some intellectual capacity that he did not. He found the classes completely incomprehensible. It was a great disappointment to me, he said. A new string of homicides began the following month, including two that would remain undiscovered until Bundy confessed to them shortly before his execution. On September 2nd, Bundy raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho then returned the next day to photograph and dismember the corpse before disposing of the remains in a nearby river. On October 2nd, he abducted 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox in Holiday, Utah, a suburb of Salt Lake City. Bundy confessed that Wilcox was walking on a poorly lit main roadway when he parked his car and forced her into an orchard. He then restrained her and put her into his vehicle and drove back to his apartment, where he allegedly kept her for 24 hours. Bundy informed investigators that her remains were buried near Capitol Reef National Park, some 200 miles of ho- south of Hall Holiday, but they were never found. On October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of the police chief of Midvale, another Salt Lake City suburb, disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor at around 9.30 p.m. Her nude body was found in a nearby mountainous area nine days later. Postmortem examination indicated that she may have remained alive for up to seven days following her disappearance. On October 31st, Laura Ann Aim, also 17, disappeared 25 miles south of Lehigh after leaving a Halloween party by herself just after midnight. She was last seen trying to hitchhike. Her naked body was found by hikers nine miles to the northeast in American Fort Canyon on Thanksgiving Day. The medical examiner estimated that Amy had died on November 20th, 20 days after her disappearance. 
Both Smith and Amy had been beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. Years later, Bundy described his post-mortem rituals with the corpses of Smith and Amy, including hair shampooing and application of makeup. In the late afternoon of November 8th, Bundy approached 18-year-old telephone operator Carol DeRanch at Fashion Place Mall in Murray, less than a mile from the Midvale restaurant where Smith was last seen. He identified himself as Officer Rosalind of the Murray Police Department and told DeRanch that someone had attempted to break into her car. He asked her to accompany him to the station to file a complaint. When DeRanch pointed out to Bundy that he was driving on a road that did not lead to the police station, he immediately pulled onto the shoulder and attempted to handcuff her. During their struggle, he inadvertently fastened both handcuffs to the same wrist, and Durant was able to open the car door and escape. Later that evening, Deborah Jean Kent, a 17-year-old student at Viewmont High School in, Bount- in Bountiful, 20 miles north of Murray, disappeared after leaving a theater production at the school to pick up her brother. The school's drama teacher and a student told the police that a stranger had asked each of them to come out to the parking lot to identify a car. Another student later saw the same man pacing in the rear of the auditorium, and the drama teacher spotted him again shortly before the end of the play. Outside the auditorium, investigators found a key that unlocked the handcuffs removed from Durant's wrist. Bundy eventually admitted to abducting Kent and keeping her in his apartment for a day, stating that she was alive during half of it. In November, Klopfer called King County Police a second time after reading that young women were disappearing in towns surrounding Salt Lake City. Detective Randy Hergschmeyer of the Major Crimes Division interviewed her in detail. By then, Bundy had risen considerably on the King County hierarchy of suspicion, but the Lake Sammamish witness, considered most reliable by detectives, failed to identify him from a photo lineup. In December, Klopfer called the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office and repeated her suspicions. Bundy's name was added to their list of suspects, but at that time no credible forensic evidence leaked him to the Utah crimes. In January 1975, Bundy returned to Seattle after his final exams and spent a week with Klopfer, who did not tell him that she had reported him to police on three occasions. She made plans to visit him in Salt Lake City in August. In 1975, Bundy shifted much of his criminal activity eastward, from his base in Utah to Colorado. On January 12th, a 23-year-old registered nurse named Karen Eileen Campbell disappeared while walking down a well-lit hallway between the elevator and her room at the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass Village, 400 miles southeast of Salt Lake City. Her nude body was found a month later next to a dirt road just outside the resort. According to the coroner's report, she had been killed by blows to the her head from a blunt instrument that left distinctive linear groove depressions on her skull. Her assailant had slit her left earlobe 
and her body also bore deep cuts from a sharp weapon. On March 15th, 100 miles northeast of Snowmass, Valley ski instructor Julie Lee Cunningham disappeared while walking from her apartment to a dinner date with a friend. Bundy later told Colorado investigators that he approached Cunningham on crutches and asked her to help carry his ski boots to his car, where he clubbed and handcuffed her before sexually assaulting her at a secondary site near Rifle, 90 miles west of Vail. Weeks later, he made the six-hour drive from Salt Lake City to revisit her remains. Denise Lynn Oliverson disappeared near the Utah-Colorado border in Grand Junction on April 6 while riding her bicycle to her parents' house. Her bike and sandals were found under a viaduct near a railroad bridge. Bundy stated that he abducted Oliverson, killed her in his car near the Utah state line, and dumped her body in the Colorado River. This admission was supported by gas receipts, which showed that he was in the city on the exact same day that Oliverson went missing. On May 6th, Bundy parked outside of the Almeida Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho, 160 miles north of Salt Lake City, and after seeing 12-year-old Lynette Don Culver walking along by herself, he lured her into his vehicle before driving her to his Holiday Inn hotel room. He then raped Culver and drowned her in the bathtub. He disposed of her body in the Snake River north of Pocatello. Bundy reportedly provided intimate details about Lynette's personal life in his confession. In mid-May, three of Bundy's Washington State DES co-workers including Boone, visited him in Salt Lake City and stayed for a week in his apartment. He subsequently spent a week in Seattle with Klopfer in early June, and they discussed getting married the following Christmas. Again, Klopfer made no mention of her multiple discussions with authorities in King County and Salt Lake County. Bundy disclosed neither his ongoing relationship with Boone nor a concurrent romance with a Utah law student, known in various accounts as either Kim Andrews or Sharon Auer. On June 28th, 15-year-old Susan Curtis vanished from the campus of Brigham Young University in Provo, 45 miles south of Salt Lake City. Her murder became Bundy's last confession, tape-recorded moments before he entered the execution chamber. The bodies of victims Wilcox, Kent, Cunningham, Oliverson, Culver, and Curtis were never recovered. In August of 1975, Bundy was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, although he was not an active participant in services and ignored most church restrictions. He would later be excommunicated by the LDS Church following his 1976 kidnapping conviction. When asked his religious preferences after his arrest, Bundy answered Methodist, the religion of his childhood. In Washington State, investigators were still struggling to analyze the Pacific Northwest murder spree that had ended abruptly as it had begun. In an effort to make sense of an overwhelming mass of data, they resorted 
to the then innovative strategy of compiling a database. They used the King County Payroll Computer, a huge primitive machine by contemporary standards, but the only one available for their use. After inputting many lists they had compiled, classmates and acquaintances of each victim, Volkswagen owners named Ted, known sex offenders, and so on, they queried the computer for coincidences. One of, out of thousands of names, 26 turned up on four lists. One was Bundy. Detectives also manually compiled a list of their 100 best suspects, and Bundy was on that list as well. He was literally at the top of the pile of suspects when word came from Utah of his arrest. On August 16, 1975, Bundy was arrested by Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger, another Salt Lake City suburb. Hayward observed Bundy cruising a residential area in his Volkswagen Beetle during the pre-dawn hours and fleeing at high speed after seeing the patrol car. He noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats and searched the car. He found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. Bundy explained that the ski mask was for skiing. He had found the handcuffs in a dumpster, and the rest were common household items. However, Detective Jerry Thompson remembered a similar suspect and car description from the November 1974 Durant kidnapping, and Bundy's name from Klopfer's phone call a month later. In a search of Bundy's apartment, police found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by the Wildwood End and a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play in Bountiful, where Kent had disappeared. The police did not have sufficient evidence to detain Bundy, so he was released on his own recognizance. Bundy later said that searches missed a hidden collection of Polaroid photographs of his victims, which he destroyed after he was released. Salt Lake City Police placed Bundy on 24-hour surveillance, and Thompson flew to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Klopfer. She told them that in the year prior to Bundy's move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she couldn't understand in her house and in Bundy's apartment. These items included crutches, a bag of plaster of Paris that he admitted stealing from a medical supply house, and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Additional objects, including surgical gloves, an oriental knife in a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment, and a sack full of women's clothing. Bundy was perpetually in debt, and Klopfer suspected that he had stolen almost everything of significant value that he had possessed. When she confronted him over a new TV and stereo, he warned her, If you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck. She said Bundy became very upset whenever she considered cutting her hair, which was long and parted in the middle. She would sometimes awaken in the middle of the night to find him under the bed covers with a flashlight, examining her body. He kept a lug wrench taped halfway up the handle in the trunk of her car. 
another Volkswagen Beetle, which he often borrowed for protection. The detectives confirmed that Bundy had not been with Klopfer on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, nor on the day Ott and Noslin were abducted from Lake Sammamish State Park. Shortly thereafter, Klopfer was interviewed by Seattle homicide detective Kathy McChinsey and learned of the existence of Diane Edwards and her brief engagement to Bundy around Christmas of 1973. In September, Bundy sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a Midvale teenager. Utah police impounded it, and FBI technicians dismantled and searched it. They found hairs matching samples obtained from Campbell's body. Later, they also identified hair strands microscopically microscopically indistinguishable from those of Smith and DeRanch. FBI lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three different victims who had never met one another would be a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. On October 2nd, detectives put Bundy into a lineup. DeRanch immediately identified him as Officer Roseland and witnesses from Bountiful recognized him as a stranger at the Viewmont High School Auditorium. There was inf insufficient evidence to link him to Kent, whose body had not yet been found, but more than enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in the Durant case. He was freed on a $15,000 bail paid by his parents and spent most of the time between indictment and trial in Seattle, living in Klopfer's house. Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but kept him under close surveillance. When Ted and I stepped out on the porch to go somewhere, Klopfer wrote, so many unmarked police cars started up that it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500. In November, the three principal Bundy investigators, Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fischel, Fisher from Colorado, met in Aspen, Colorado, and exchanged information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states. While officials left the meeting, which was later referred to as the Aspen Summit, convinced that Bundy was the murderer they sought, they agreed that more hard evidence would be needed before he could be charged with any of the murders. In February 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durant kidnapping. On the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, he waived his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. After a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. In October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, road maps, airline schedules, and a social security card, and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with Campbell's murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January of 1977. On June 7, 1977, 
Bundy was transported 40 miles from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. He had elected to serve as his own attorney and as such was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles. During a recess, he asked to visit the courthouse law, courthouse's law library to research his case. While shielded from his guard's view behind a bookcase, he opened a window and jumped to the ground from the second story, injuring his right ankle as he landed. After shedding an outer layer of clothing, Bundy limped through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up on its outskirts, then hiked south onto Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. The following day, he left the cabin and continued south toward the town of Crested Butte, but became lost in the forest. For two days, he wandered aimlessly on the mountain, missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. On June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake, 10 miles south of Aspen, taking food and a ski parka. However, instead of continuing southward, he walked back north toward Aspen, eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way. Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen Golf Course. Cold, sleep-deprived, and in constant pain from his sprained ankle, Bundy drove back into Aspen, where two police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled him over. He had been a fugitive for six days. In the car were maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Campbell's body. As his own attorney, Bundy had rights of discovery, indicating that his escape had been planned. Back in jail in Glenwood Springs, Bundy ignored the advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put. The case against him, already weak at best, was deteriorating steadily, steadily as pretrial motions consistently resolved in his favor, and significant bits of evidence were ruled inadmissible. A more rational defendant might have realized that he stood a good chance of acquittal and that beating the murder charge in Colorado would probably have dissuaded other prosecutors, with as little as a year and a half to serve on the Durange conviction. Had Ted preserved, he could have been a free man. Instead, Bundy assembled a new escape plan. He acquired a detailed floor plan of the Garfield Community Jail and a hacksaw blade from other inmates. He accumulated $500 in cash, smuggled in over a six-month period by visitors, Boone in particular. During the evenings, while other prisoners were showering, he would saw a hole about one square foot between the steel reinforcing bars in his cell's ceiling. Having lost 35 pounds, he was able to wiggle through and explore the crawl space above in the weeks that followed. Multiple reports from an informant of movement within the ceiling during the night were not investigated. By late 1977, Bundy's impending trial had become quite the controversy in the small town of Aspen, and Bundy filed a motion for a change of venue to Denver. 
On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted the request, but to Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. On the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate his sleeping body, and climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife, changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet, and walked out the front door to freedom. After stealing a car, Bundy drove eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but the car soon broke down in the mountains on Interstate 70. A passing motorist gave him a ride into Vail, 60 miles to the east. From there, he caught a bus to Denver, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. Back in Glenwood Springs, the jail's skeleton crew did not discover the escape until noon on December 31st, more than 17 hours later. By then, Bundy was already in Chicago. From Chicago, Bundy traveled by train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was present in a local tavern on January 2nd. Five days later, he stole a car and drove south to Atlanta, where he boarded a bus and arrived in Tallahassee, Florida on the morning of January 8th. He stayed for one night at a hotel before he rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen at a boarding house near the Florida State University campus. Bundy later said that he initially resolved to find legitimate employment and refrain from, from further criminal activity knowing he could probably remain free and undetected in Florida indefinitely, as long as he did not attract the attention of police. But his lone job application at a construction site had to be abandoned when he was asked to produce identification. He reverted to his old habits of shoplifting and stealing money and credit cards from women's wallets left in shopping carts at local grocery stores. In the early hours of January 15, 1978, one week after his arrival in Tallahassee, Bundy entered FSU's Chi Omega sorority house through the rear door with a faulty locking mechanism. Beginning at about 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned Margaret Elizabeth Bowman with a piece of oak firewood as she slept, then garroted her with a nylon stocking. He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Janet Levy and beat her unconscious, strangled her, tore one of her nipples, bit deeply into her left butt cheek, and sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. Jesus. In an adjoining bedroom, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, 21, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder, and Karen Chandler, 21, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Chandler and Kleiner survived the attack. Kleiner attributed their survival to automobile headlights illuminating the interior of their room and frightening away their attacker. Tallahassee detectives determined that the four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes, within earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard nothing. After leaving the sorority house, Bundy broke into a basement apartment eight blocks away and attacked 21-year-old 
FSU student Cheryl Thomas, dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five places. She was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dance career. On Thomas's bed, police found a semen stain in a pantyhose mask containing two hairs, similar to Bundy's in class and characteristic. On February 8th, Bundy drove 150 miles east to Jacksonville in a stolen FSU van. In a parking lot, he approached 14-year-old Leslie Perimenter, the daughter of the Jacksonville Police Department's chief of detectives, identifying himself as Richard Burton, fire department, but retreated when Perimenter's older brother arrived and confronted him. That afternoon, he backtracked 60 miles westward to Lake City. At Lake City Junior High School, the following morning, 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach was summoned to her homeroom by a teacher to retrieve a forgotten purse. She never returned to class. Seven weeks later, after an intensive search, her partially mummified remains were found in a pig farrowing shed near Sunawee River State Park, 35 miles northwest of Lake City. Forensic experts surmised that Leach had been raped before having her throat cut and her genitals mutilated with a knife. On February 12th, with insufficient cash to pay his overdue rent and a growing suspicion that police were closing in on him, Bundy stole a car and fled Tallahassee, driving westward across the Florida Panhandle. Three days later, at around 1 a.m., he was stopped by a Pensacola police officer, David Lee, near the Alabama state line after a wants and warrants check showed his Volkswagen Beetle was stolen. When told that he was under arrest, Bundy kicked Lee's legs out from under him and took off running. Lee fired two warning shots, then gave chase and tackled him. The two struggled over Lee's gun before the officer finally subdued and and arrested Bundy. In the stolen vehicle were three sets of IDs belonging to female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen television set. Also found were a pair of dark-rimmed non-prescription glasses and a pair of plaid slacks, later identified as the disguise worn by Richard Burton fire department in Jacksonville. As Lee transported his suspect to jail, unaware that he'd just arrested one of the FBI's ten most wanted fugitives, he heard Bundy say, I wish you had killed me. Following a change of venue to Miami, Bundy stood trial for the Chi Omega homicides and assaults in June 1979. The trial was covered by 250 reporters from five continents and was the first to be televised nationally in the United States. Despite the presence of five court-appointed attorneys, Bundy again handled much of his own defense. From the beginning, he sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and Grandoy's delusion. Nelson later wrote, Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him apparently was that he be in charge. According to Mike Minerva, a Tallahassee public defender 
and member of the defense team. A pre-trial plea bargain was negotiated in which Bundy would plead guilty to killing Levy, Bowman, and Leach in exchange for a firm 75-year prison sentence. Prosecutors were amenable to a deal by one account because prospects of losing at trial were very good. Bundy, on the other hand, saw the plea deal not only as a means of avoiding the death penalty, but also as a tactical move. He could enter his plea, then wait a few years for evidence to disintegrate or become lost, and for witnesses to die, move on, or retract their testimony. Once the case against him had deteriorated beyond repair, he could file a post-conviction motion to set aside the plea and secure an acquittal. At the last minute, however, Bundy refused the deal. It made him realize that he was going to have to stand up in front of the whole world and say that he was guilty. Minerva said he just couldn't do it. At trial, crucial testimony came from Chi Omega sorority members Connie Hastings, who placed Bundy in the vicinity of the sorority house that evening, and Nita Neary, who saw him leaving the house clutching the murder weapon. Incriminating physical evidence included impressions of the bite wounds Bundy had inflicted on Levy's left butt cheek, which forensic ontologist Richard Sorverin and Lowell Levine matched to castings of Bundy's teeth. The jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting Bundy on July 24, 1979, of the Bowman and Levy murders, three counts of attempted first-degree murder for the assaults on Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas, and two counts of burglary. Trial Judge Edward Cowart imposed death sentences for the murder convictions. Six months later, a second trial took place in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Leach. Bundy was found guilty once again after less than eight hours' deliberation due principally to the testimony of an eyewitness who saw him leading Leach from the schoolyard to a stolen van. Important material evidence including clothing fibers with an unusual manufacturing error found in the van and on Leach's body, which matched fibers from the jacket Bundy was wearing when he was arrested. During the penalty phase of the Leach trial, Bundy took advantage of an obscure Florida law providing that a marriage declaration in court and the presence of a judge constituted illegal marriage. As he was questioning Boone, who had moved to Florida to be near Bundy, had testified on his behalf during both trials and was again testifying on his behalf as a character witness. He asked her to marry him. She accepted and Bundy declared to the court that they were legally married. On February 10, 1980, Bundy was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. As a sentence was announced, he reportedly stood and shouted, Tell the jury they were wrong. This third death sentence would be the one ultimately carried out nearly nine years later. On October 24, 1982, Boone gave birth to a daughter, Rose Bundy. While conjugal visits were not allowed at the Florida State Prison in Ryford, where Bundy was incarcerated, inmates were known to pool their money in order to bribe guards to allow them intimate time alone with their female visitors. Shortly after the conclusion of the Leach trial and the beginning of the long appeals process that followed, 
Bundy initiated a series of interviews with Stephen Machad and Hugh Ainsworth, speaking mostly in third person to avoid the stigma of confusion. He began for the first time to divulge details of his crimes and thought processes. Bundy recounted his career as a thief, confirming Klopfer's longtime suspicion that he had shoplifted virtually everything of substance that he owned. The big payoff for me, he said, was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. I really enjoyed having something that I had wanted and gone out and taken. Possession proved to be an important motive for rape and murder as well. Sexual assault, he said, fulfilled his need to totally possess his victims. At first, he killed his victims as a matter of expediency to eliminate the possibility of being caught. But later, murder became part of the adventure. The ultimate possession was, in fact, the taking of the life, he said, and then the physical possession of the remains. Bundy also confided in Special Agent William Hagmeyer of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit. Hagmeyer was struck by the deep, almost mystical satisfaction that Bundy took in murder. He said that after a while, murder is not just a crime of lust or violence, Hagmeyer related. It becomes possession. They are a part of you. The victim becomes a part of you, and you two are forever one. And the grounds where you kill them or leave them become sacred to you, and you will always be drawn back to them. Bundy told Hagmeyer that he considered himself to be an amateur and impulsive killer in his early years, before moving into what he termed his prime or predator phase at about the time of Healy's murder in 1974. This implied that he began killing well before 1974, although he never explicitly admitted having done so. In July 1984, prison guards found two hacksaw blades hidden in Bundy's cell. A steel bar in one of the cell's windows had been sawed completely through at the top and bottom and glued back into place with a homemade soap-based adhesive. Several months later, guards found an unauthorized mirror, and Bundy was moved to a different cell. Shortly thereafter, he was charged with a disciplinary infraction for unauthorized correspondence with another high-profile criminal, John Hinckley Jr. In October of 1984, Bundy contacted Keppel and offered to share his self-proclaimed expertise in serial killer psychology in the ongoing hunt in Washington for the Green River Killer, later identified as Gary Ridgway. Keppel and Green River Task Force Detective Dave Reichard interviewed Bundy, but Ridgway remained at large for a further 17 years. Keppel published a detailed documentation of the Green River interviews and later collaborated with Machard another examination of the interview material. In early 1986, an execution date, March 4th, was set on the Chai Omega convictions. The U.S. Supreme Court issued a brief stay, but the execution was quickly rescheduled. In April, shortly after the new date, July 2nd, was announced, Bundy finally confessed to Hagmeyer and Nelson that they believed was the full range of his 
trepidations, including details of what he did to some of his victims after their deaths. He told them that he revisited Taylor Mountain, Issaquah, and other secondary crime scenes, often several times, to lie with his victims and perform sexual acts with their bodies until putrefaction forced him to stop. In some cases, he drove for several hours each way and remained the entire night. In Utah, he applied makeup to Smith's lifeless face and repeatedly washed Amy's hair. If you've got time, he told Hagmeyer, they can be anything you want them to be. He decapitated approximately 12 of his victims with a hacksaw and kept at least one group of severed heads, probably the four later found on Taylor Mountain, in his apartment for a period of time before disposing of them. Less than 15 hours before the scheduled July 2nd execution, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals stated indefinitely and remained, remanded the Chi Omega case for review on multiple technicalities, including Bundy's mental competency to stand trial and an erroneous instruction by the trial judge during the penalty phase requiring the jury to break a 6-6 tie between life imprisonment and the death penalty which ultimately were never resolved. A new date, November 18th, was then set to carry out the Leach sentence. The 11th Circuit Court issued a stay on November 17th. In mid-1988, the 11th Circuit Court ruled against Bundy, and in December, the Supreme Court denied a motion to review the ruling over the dissents of Justices Thurgood Marshall and William J. Brennan, Jr. Within hours of that final denial, a firm execution date of January 24, 1989 was announced. Bundy's journey through the appeals court had been unusually rapid for a capital murder case. Contrary to popular belief, the courts moved Bundy as fast as they could. Even the prosecutors acknowledged that Bundy's lawyers never employed delaying tactics though people everywhere seethed at the apparent delay in executing Ted Bundy. With all appeal avenues exhausted and no further motivation to deny his crimes, Bundy agreed to speak frankly with investigators. He confessed to Keppel that he had committed all eight of the Washington and Oregon homicides for which he was the prime suspect. He described three additional previously unknown victims in Washington and two in Oregon whom he declined to identify if indeed he ever knew their identities. He said he left a fifth corpse, Manson's, on Taylor Mountain, but incinerated her head in Clopfer's fireplace. He described the Issaquah crime scene where the bones of Ott, Noslin, and Hawkins were found, and it was almost like he was just there. Keppel said, like he was seeing everything. He was infatuated with the idea because he spent so much time there. He is just totally consumed with murder all the time. Nelson's impressions were similar. It was the absolute misogyny of his crimes that stunned me, she wrote. His manifest rage against women. He had no compassion at all. He was totally engrossed in the details. His murders were his life's accomplishments. 
Bundy confessed to detectives from Idaho, Utah, and Colorado that he committed numerous additional homicides, including several that were unknown to the police. He explained that when he was in Utah, he could bring his victims back to his apartment, where he could reenact scenarios depicted on the covers of detective magazines. A new, ulterior strategy quickly became apparent. He withheld many details, hoping to parlay the incomplete information into yet another stay of execution. There are other buried remains in Colorado, he admitted, but refused to elaborate. The new strategy, immediately dubbed Ted's Bones for Time Scheme, served only to deepen the resolve of authorities to see Bundy executed on schedule and yielded little new detailed information. In cases where he did give details, nothing was found. Colorado detective Matt Linval interpreted this as a conflict between his desire to postpone his execution by divulging information and his need to remain in total possession, the only person who knew his victims' true resting places. When it became clear that no further stays would be forthcoming from the courts, Bundy supporters began lobbying for the only remaining option, executive clemency. Diane Weiner, a young Florida attorney in Bundy's last purported love interest, asked the families of several Colorado and Utah victims to petition Florida Governor Bob Martinez for a postponement to give Bundy time to reveal more information. All of them refused. The families already believed that the victims were dead and that Ted had killed them, wrote Nelson. They didn't need his confession. Martinez made it clear that he would not agree to further delays in any case. We are not going to have the system manipulated, he told reporters. For him to be negotiating for his life over the bodies of victims is despicable. Boone had championed Bundy's innocence throughout all of his trials and felt deeply portrayed by his admission that he was, in fact, guilty. She moved back to Washington with her daughter and refused to accept his phone call on the morning of his execution. She was hurt by his relationship with Diana. Nelson wrote, and devastated by his sudden wholesale confessions in his last days. Hagmeyer was present during Bundy's final interviews with investigators. On the eve of his execution, he talked of suicide. He did not want to give the state the satisfaction of watching him die. Bundy was executed in the Ryford electric chair at 7.16 a.m. on Tuesday, January 24, 1989. His last words were directed at his attorney, Jim Coleman, and Methodist minister, Fred Lawrence. Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. Hundreds of revelers sang, danced, and set off fireworks in a pasture across from the prison as the execution was carried out, then cheered as the white hearse containing Bundy's corpse departed the prison. He was cremated in Gainesville, and his ashes were scattered at an undisclosed location in the Cascade Range of Washington State in accordance with his will.
Well, that is going to do it for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the story. If so, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find the show. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. But once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep those doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. <laughs>